Hey there, before we get into the actual episode, I want to apologize in advance. Uh, We had some intense audio issues uh, with this, and so we ended up recording basically using the system uh, speakers and an outboard device as a microphone. Um, But I do think that the quality of the conversation is so good that you'll just be able to kind of get used to it. But it does sound a little bit like a lo-fi true crime podcast. Um, But stay tuned because at the very end, we actually have a very hi-fi, lovely uh, recording of David and Joyce playing from their new album. So stick around for that. And thank you so much for your patience as we dealt with these audio issues. Thanks. Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome to the Lonely Cello Podcast. I'm Emily Wright, and I am here with... And we are here to talk about so much different stuff from like cello nerdery to Celtic music and maybe a bit about how improvisation and so-called alternative styles don't necessarily have to be daunting. And from my personal experience, I can say that learning to improvise um, really made my relationship with the instrument stronger. And I bet you agree. Absolutely. I mean, it's um, getting into this alternative world of cello um, has been really, for, and certainly at my point, in the, this point in my life where, you know, I was retiring from teaching full-time at university and, um, I sort of stumbled on this and I can, we can go into that later, how I ended up here, but it's been, it's kind of a, a wonderful lifesaver just as I was kind of leaving, I was a conductor, a cello teacher, and opera and orchestras, and then I just was, I was retiring from that, wondering what I was going to do, I discovered this whole other world, and I just took off, and that, that's basically most of what I do these days. I, I think we would call that dovetailed phrasing, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I guess the, the first thing we'll do is let's tell the folks, how do we know each other? How, why am I even talking to you? How is this possible? Well, you were my you were a student of mine at Cal State Northridge, uh, where I was a conductor, and then I transitioned into being a, a cello teacher there. And um, and I've had and one of the reasons that why we bonded was that I have had cello hand issues throughout my life. When I was a senior in college, and I was doing the Brahms F major sonata for my senior recital. I ended up getting growing a big ganglion cyst on the back of my hand and had had two surgeries back there. And so I know that I remember that you had issues with your hands and your whole body usage issues. And I had dealt with it. I've done Alexander technique. I've been with other teachers who were very good at, at um, dealing with hand issues and, and tension issues. So we kind of fell into each other as I was trying to help you, trying to drag you kicking and screaming through your senior recital. Oh, it was so hard. Oh, God. It was I the know. shortest, it was the shortest senior recital ever given at Cal State Northridge. I think we came in at like 43 minutes or something like that. But it got done. It got done. So. It, it, it 
It, it did, it did. Um, and so I guess the next thing that would be useful for everybody to hear, because everybody gets to where they are differently, um, would you talk a, a little bit about like your life in music? So like when did you start, why did you choose the cello, and kind of what are some of the data points on your journey to where you are now? Oh, you got a couple hours? Um, well, we do. <laughs> well, no, I was, my, I came from a family of musicians. My father was a conductor, my grandfather was a fairly famous composer, um, and everybody, my sister, my older sister played piano, and so I started cello, I think, when I was seven, and I stopped because I couldn't get my first finger in tune, and I, I had a good ear at a very early age. And I was just crying. I was running to my mother crying because I couldn't get it in tune. And she, she said, yeah, this is, you need to not do this because this is not the way it's supposed to be. And then two years later when I was nine, I went to my father and I said, you know, I think I want to try the cello again. And here I am at age 72 and not having stopped since then. How was your so, first finger intonation? Is that, that's improved? It still sucks. <laughs> it's always... As long as it's not an extension, I'm fine, man. I don't know why. I, it's, you're, you know, it's an interesting question because I, I swear that is the finger that is more out of tune than any than the other three. And I don't know why. In first position. You know, that might actually be true for me as well, actually. Maybe it's because it's so, like, it's so dominant and so strong. And where these other ones, like, we're so used to consciously controlling them, right? Third finger has to feel like a stretch, right? Like, we're so conscious of that. Maybe the first finger is just sort of like, eh, I go where I, I want. What? I have another idea of why that's a problem. Hmm. That we all know that, like, if you're playing... Um, uh, e on the D string with your first finger and combining that with G with the open G string that's a very different note that major sixth is a very different note than the E that you play with the open A string and the perfect fourth and I don't know any other finger where there's so much variety possible that is ex so you think you've okay I've got this I've been playing you know, working on my first finger intonation with the G string for the last week, and now all of a sudden you're playing it's something where you have the A string there, and you're doing, and it's just like, what happened? It's like no good. Anyway, so yeah. that could be positive part of it. Yeah, I was just gonna as like a little aside. I I started working on the Britain solo suites, and there's Britain. nothing, which is so beautiful, but there is nothing like that first movement for like. How are the spaces between your fingers? <laughs> it's so brutal. And there's like no option for big vibrato. It sounds like stupid if you have a ton of vibrato. And then I go on YouTube and I listen to all these Juilliard first years absolutely drilling it. So I'm like, I just need more time. I, it is possible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway. So your journey. Um, so my journey. So yes. So then I played and got into the high school of music and art at New York in New York City and played there, which was a great school. Uh, you know, we play. I played in a quartet and I was in the in the symphony and we were doing Shostakovich Five and and Mahler One in high school and it was pretty awesome. Um, then I went to Indiana for two years and then I went to I transferred to Oberlin because I had become a conductor and a cellist, and Oberlin's conducting program I thought was better than 
Indiana's conducting program, mm. I would have got, it looked like I was going to get more chance to get on the podium, mm. uh, which is kind of important to learn how to be a conductor. You need to get up there and do it. Yep. So I, um, I spent three years at Oberlin, and I, I always liked music. I, I, you know, it's interesting. I never really, people have asked me, like, when did you decide that you want to be a cellist or wanted to be a musician? And I never really did. I just started playing when I was young, and I kept playing, and it got me into college. And, you know, my father was a college professor, and um, so I, you know, having um, tuition paid for by his college, he taught at Sarah Lawrence, was just fine with me, and so that wasn't an issue. Um, and then I really kind of fell in love with an old long like when I was in college, I was also into rock and roll. Yeah, I remember you played bass. I played bass in a rock band. And, yeah. You know, it was during the whole Beatles and Cream and Blind Faith and Eric Clapton and the whole thing. And that was my, my era in college at the time. Um, and so I was really into that and playing that kind of... So I always had this kind of rocker somewhere buried inside my head. Yeah. Um, and then after I got out of college, I got a job in South America That's right. playing, playing first cello in the National Symphony of Columbia in Bogota, where I stayed for three years and played in a quartet there and learned Spanish fluently and had a great time. But, but, you know, when you're in, I mean, it was a decent orchestra, but not a great orchestra. Yeah. And so when you're all... You know, when you go to live overseas, fairly soon after a couple of years, you have to, you're faced with a decision that either I'm going to go home, back to the States, or I'm going to stay here forever. I'm going to set down some roots. Yeah. I'm going to stay here forever because then you sort of have to accept their way of life and the level of the musicianship there. And you just decide, I'm going to stay here. So I decided to go. I went back to the United States mostly for cellistic reasons, but I was still conducting. Yes. And then I, uh, I ended up getting into the college conducting business, actually following my father's footsteps. And, but he was a choral conductor and I was an orchestra conductor, so there was that difference. And um, I started at the College of St. Catherine, a Catholic girls' college in St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs> Stayed there. Then I got a job at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And then um, I had just gotten married. And my wife, who was a fabulous pianist, but there wasn't any, she's an opera coach. And there wasn't any opera going on in Tampa at the time. She had to drive 90 miles to go to Orlando. And, and she basically said, it's either me or Tampa. One of us is going to go. So I I applied for and got the job at Cal State Northridge. And so Thank goodness. California. Thank yeah. goodness you did. And I, and I stayed there for 30 years. Damn right. Fantastic. Yeah. So many musicians who are now top studio players were under your baton or got your like advice for uh, chamber music or you know, musicianship or theory. I've actually interviewed a bunch of Cal State Northridge people. You know, by the way, Paul Cartwright is yes. like hot shit. 
He's amazing. And he's, yeah, he's like the top. I mean, I get my bows rehaired by somebody who plays with him all the time. And in fact, we've sort of become, we've, I think we're now official Facebook friends, although we haven't said much back and forth to each other. But yeah, he supposedly is this great improviser and he plays mandolin now too. He, he plays everything, but it's just so funny because a lot of us came into Cal State Northridge thinking, damn it, I didn't get the scholarship into the school that I wanted. And then it ended up being this perfect incubator okay. for, I mean, and that's the whole thing though. It should have like a more, it should have a better reputation. If you look at who the studio players are right now, yeah, if you're really? looking at the people who are kicking ass and taking names in composition and just like occupying these spaces where we influence another generation, Cal State Northridge is second to none with no apologies. Wow. It really, well, it's, it's amazing. And it was, and it's also useful because it's like, it's not a school that people outside of California think of, I don't think. Um, but I'll tell you what, if you look at the faculty that we had, look at how like astute and like amazing every single faculty member was. It yeah, was. Well, I thought there was a good faculty, you know? I thought it was too. And if I had it to do again, I would actually choose Cal State Northridge 100% all over again. Oh, that's nice to hear. It was, it was just so good. But you know, it is nice to hear you say that because as a teacher, we don't, we don't hear that. You know, students graduate and they go away and we wonder whether we've had any impact at all in their lives, you know, and no one tells us, you know, and if you don't stay in touch with students really on a regular basis, which I have been bad about, um, you don't know, you know, but every once in a while I run into somebody and they say, you know, you said one day in class, <laughs> you said this thing and it changed my whole life. And I said, I did. Really? I don't even remember that. You know, it's probably some offhand comment. But then I think about my life in a as a musician and as a cellist, and very often what, what drives what I do is the collection of those little nuggets that one person said to you one day, you know, yeah. that, that you just, and, and or you heard a master class, so you saw something, yeah. you said something about it, or you read something about it, and it's not this big thing, it's just a collection of little tiny nuggets that somebody once said to you. No, that's what that's what I have. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, just like a list. There's a whole list of things. Like, um, I will never not record recognize Locrian Sharp too because of something Matt Harris once said to me. I will never not trust my gut because Julia Heinen said you should have physical reactions to intervals. I will not ever worry about being a rich musician because George Hoisenstam was like, "Are you alive and do you love music?" Then that is enough, right? It's just like like. And every single day, though, it was like a one punch after the other, just these fabulous, it, just, it was exactly the right place for all of us. And, and it was and just, yeah. And it's really up to you whether you're going to listen to it, whether you're going to hear it. Somebody, you know, we could say it all day long, and if you're not listening, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, you have to be uh, ready to hear it, and not everybody, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, Hundreds of genius statements bounced off of me in my day as well. 
Well, I mean, and I, I've had several people come to me who were in my theory class, my musicianship classes, and said that they remember um, the, the Dorian and the Mixolydian modes because I call them the Starbucks modes <laughs> because they both, because we used, if you remember, we used solfege. Yes. And we used, uh, we used solfege and we used the chromatic alterations. Yes. Dorian and Mixolydian both have latte. <laughs> and so, so I perfect. call them the Starbucks modes because they have latte. You've got the six and then the small seventh. Right. So they have latte. <laughs> and so people have told me, I will never forget that. By the way, and this should actually go down in history, even though this is a tangent, it's very important that it somehow gets out on the internet. Um, do you... Um, do you remember any of the ethnomusicology stuff about like some of the, I think it was called like, like the Kashek dance that like the Balinese people do? Okay, it's like they call it the monkey chant. And it's this crazy, crazy, very intense dovetailing phrases. So Mary Shamrock. Yeah. I was so lucky to get her for my yeah. first ethnomusicology. I think there was a wor world music class. It was before. She retired pretty soon after that. Yes, and so I, that's why I feel like I'm so lucky. But I remember Carrie and Melissa Lee and I were in the back, and we were just a bunch of jokers. I mean, we were enjoying it, but like we found a lot of humor and everything that was going on. Um, and I remember, and I, I raised my hand and I said, um, "Dr. Shamrock, is is there by chance a dance that goes with this?" And she said. Why, yes, Emily, there is. And she pressed play and ran around the bottom of this amphitheater doing this, like, limping, amazing, extreme <laughs> dance. And I was like, this woman is an absolute legend. So you should just know everybody who hears that there was a... Dr. Mary Shamrock was a complete legend and did not even care. She was just so into everything and so passionate about it. She didn't care if she looked silly. She showed us, and actually, then we went and looked it up, a very accurate approximation of wow, this, like, Balinese good. dance. Anyway. Well, you, you, you actually were at Cal State Northridge at the... You got the, the, uh, a generation of teachers there that eventually, fairly soon after you all retired and went away. We got the changing of the guard, I think. Right, and then there was a whole, then I, I was sort of part of the new gang that had come in. Um, and there were there were new people coming in at that time. And um, so so you kind of got both, both worlds there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, no, it was... I was going to say, it's so great to, to have been taught by some of, like, these folks who were just, like, I mean, George Hoisenstam, we, we took harmony. I took it twice, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but, like, 8 o'clock in the morning, and he was just there totally on fire for it. And he was not he, a he young man. He believed that it's, yeah, it was just, it was amazing. He was on fire for it, and I've never seen anybody quite, like, that passionate. But also that benevolent towards students. He sensed I was struggling and he wrote an email to me every week reminding me of his office hours, of things that he noticed I was, mistakes that I was making. And now that I've been an adjunct at community college, I understand the intensity of the energy that takes. Yeah. And, and he was oh, teaching yeah. so many people. So it's like... It's real easy to just say, you know, well, she's not into it, you know, I'll move. I won't, I'm not going to spend my time because there's a danger in that, in teaching. If you teach to the people who are not doing well, 
then you end up ignoring the people who are talented and who are doing fine, yep. which, if you think about it, is kind of on its head. You should be working with the people who are really talented and wonderful because they'll, they will develop. But it's just so easy to fall into the trap of, spend, of teaching to the lowest level of, the, of your students. And then the, then the people at the top get nothing. Right. And as it turned out, it was just the, the classical harmony and was like beyond me. But then I, when I changed to be like a jazz minor, for whatever reason, the vernacular that jazz used made all the sense to me. And then, of course, you can then retrofit that back and be like, oh, God, now I understand what all of these things are. For whatever reason, it's just like yeah. I took it twice and got D's twice. It was just like it hit me at all the wrong angles. And so well, the st string players always do, do pretty poorly in those jazz improv classes because we just don't have. We just don't have the vocabulary. I mean, these people have been playing this stuff forever, and we sort of come in late in the game. And uh, I mean, I, I'm learning how to do that. My fiddle partner is taking jazz. She's learning how to be a jazz violinist. And so she's teaching me stuff, and I've taken some online classes. So I'm, I'm learning how to do this and getting better at it. But it's still, I mean, I'm convinced that, the, that jazz musicians are probably the best trained musicians in the world much much more highly developed than classical musicians mentally by, um, by miles and miles i totally and agree the two the two groups of people who i think are the best trained musicians are jazz musicians and indian classical musicians they've got so much they've got more notes more modes more theory and then they go and they and live they, with their teachers and then and and then they and then they do it all improv yeah, no, absolutely. You know, they, they have this vast knowledge and they improvise. You know, if you were to stop, you know, the New York Philharmonic and ask somebody in the violin section, what chord are you playing? What chord is that that just happened on the downbeat? 99% would not know the answer to that question. If you ask any jazz musician, what's the chord structure, they'll tell you exactly in, 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 a, in a shorthand that I still don't understand, you know, with, with sharp fly sus spores. <laughs> that's my language. That See, that's the language that I learned to understand. Rob Lockhart, man, he was like such a good jazz, like harmony teacher. I, I, and that's the, that's the problem with me now. Now I see that all in classical music, but I see it as like, oh, well, that's a C sharp seven sus nine. And it's like, nope. Got it. You got to like say it in a different language. But actually, this is a perfect segue because like most of our listeners are people who haven't ever improvised. And I understand because I kind of was on this precipice myself for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I know that a lot of people have expressed interest in improvising, but it just seems like we we think that like zero is where I'm at and then like the next step seems like Miles Davis and like there's a lot that's actually in between there yeah, so yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. can you think of something that might be like an entry point for people who just feel absolutely freaked out by the idea but like let's just say they're at home and they want to try improvising is there something that you would say might be a meaningful first step Yes, I have two answers for that. I'll take them. Pro probably more, but I know <laughs> I can think of two, actually three. Um, actually four. Uh, <laughs> we all improvise. 
but with our voice. We all go, you know, sit around going, do ba do 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 ba do 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 da 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 you know, in the shower when we're driving around. You know, I've sung so many wonderful tunes to my car steering steering wheel. And and we all do that, and we can do that. Just we all can scat, you know, even if you have a terrible voice, you can always do 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 right? So what you do, and I still do this all the time, when I get stuck on my cello and I can't, I'm not real happy with what's coming out, I will just do that and then try to play it. Right. What I just sang, because I found that I can actually come up with cooler ideas when I just scat sing than I actually do on the cello because there are patterns that I get stuck in on the cello. And so if I just go do 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 and then play it, and then do 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 even if they're the wrong notes, and then I'm improvising. I'm, I'm making it up. And so that's a real easy way to start, is to just imitate what you're singing. That's right. And I would add that if you are also somebody who is learning cello, so you're not already a professional cellist like David Axe over here is, start singing something a little bit slower just so that it matches your skill on the instrument, but it's still improvising and it's still letting your ear lead. What are some of the other things you were, you were saying? You got a couple well, more. I was just going to say play when I, and I do this too. I play one note and then try to hear in my mind what the next note should be and go play that. Just starting with like one note to another note, to another note, to another note. And if you can't hear it yet, don't go on. Just keep playing a beautiful note there until you hear. And it could be. And uh, another thing that I that I that, that kind of liberated me when I started writing Celtic tunes is I gave up the idea that I had to be original. <laughs> I had to give up. I gave up the idea that I was going to like you know, change the world of music forever by what I was going to write. And I finally accepted the fact that I was going to write, you know, the most banal... Derivative. Standard, <laughs> yeah. Derivative thing in the world. And I was going to write, like, this beautiful air or this beautiful minuet that was just gorgeous and had nothing original to say other than the fact that I thought that it was pretty. And by making that switch over... It was very, very liberating because what I would, what I do is I will write a tune that, is, as you say, incredibly derivative, and then after I've written that down or made it up, then I'll go in and say, "Now that really is pretty, pretty damn boring." Um, tinker with it, right? Then I start tinkering with it and start messing around with it, and it, you know, and I, I, I wrote a, a a waltz earlier this year where I. I had these two beautiful descending lines that went and my film partner Joyce said, I feel like I'm playing Tchaikovsky for God's sakes. And so instead of going I just switched it to which is much more interesting, you know, in many, many ways, rhythmically, melodically, but I started with like standard standard. Right. Okay, so, yeah, establishing a place to start 
Because I think a lot of us, right, exactly, because I think, I mean, I, I feel pretty good when I'm improvising now, but I think a lot of things in my life, I can get paralyzed with the idea of su such fear of failure that I can't even bring myself to start. And it's like, you just have to start. And yeah, then you, you just can... have to put your, put your hands on the instrument. Right. And, and um, I mean, I, I went through a period of a couple of weeks and I, I, I let it drop, but I, I decided that every day I was going to make, try to play as beautiful a melody as I could, even mm. if it was just eight bars, just every day play, make a pretty melody. And even if it was very simple, even if it was just like, and then tomorrow I'll just do something else. And, um, Okay, so that's another step. So let's just like make this really concrete that just take something that feels uh, cello-y and melodious and lovely and just mm -hmm. put it out there. And the more you practice doing that, also the more you understand about, because um, I feel like jazz is a combination of like making melodies, yes, but feeling how those melodies lie in your hand, right? Because like there has to be some sense of like, I'm going to get this interval between these two fingers all the time. And I feel like exploring like that is like a really good way to increase your vernacular. And so this is actually, we're going to get kind of into this next question. Um, and you can tell I'm an only child because I'm talking all about myself first before I turn it over to you. Um, <laughs> but um, something that I think is important that a lot, maybe a lot of other people feel too is that, so I, I was actually really lucky. I, I don't know how many people can say that with who I dated in college because <gasps> I, I dated like two or three dudes who were just so into jazz and they were gigging all the time, which is one of the things that makes music majors very different from anything else where as soon as you get into the school it's not like chemistry students then just go home and are expected to make like polymers in their dorm room but we are expected to go out and we were gigging our, our second week of school I was getting calls for weddings and playing and practicing all the time and so I remember going to all these gigs with uh, Paul Pate was like my, my first boyfriend in college and he was so on fire for the saxophone and and music and he really infected me with that but the problem is I, I was like well I want to do this I want to do this on the cello but the problem is I was listening to all these horn players like Dexter Morgan and Freddie Hubbard and I was trying to imitate them on the cello and it just left me feeling like a total loser because like I couldn't play those notes Charlie Parker like those notes don't come out on the cello unless you're double jointed and maybe you have another person every now and again with an extra finger who can just like come in and help you out. It's just so complicated. And so Gary Pratt, like the other like love of my life at CSUN, it's like you and him, like really Gary Pratt is the reason I'm still playing because I wanted to give up. When you, when you um, had your, your surgery yeah. And Gary Pratt took over the orchestra and my arm was just like barely coming back. I was kind of limping through and he was like, you need to keep being in music. Don't worry if you can't play your cello right now. But I remember he pulled aside, told, pulled me aside and he was like, 
you need to improvise like a cellist because like there is already Freddie Hubbard, there's already Miles Davis, there's already mm -hmm. McCoy Tyner. So improvising like a cellist is very important, improvising like a string player, because I think we have other people, other string players listening to this. So what are some of the like properties of, let's just say playing a stringed instrument that's tuned in fifths. What are some of those properties that they might lean into to make their first forays into creating either a melody or playing along with somebody else? Well, you get, yeah, that's such a good question. Uh, you get the, you know, you can play two things at once, which, which those sax players can't do. That's special, right? So, so you can always uh, play along with the, the next open string which always gives you harmony and, and rhythm. And it's it, that, it, that will, that makes it very unique. And you know, the people who do that really, really well are bluegrass players. They play with double stops and they've always got another string and, and old time. And I finally learned, I'm learning a difference between bluegrass and old time. And there is a difference. And I didn't even know that four years ago. Um, but there's a lot of double stopping in those in those ways that, that can be done on no other instrument. So playing with a drone is great. Is a, yeah. is a great thing to do, and um, we do legato really well. You know, we don't we don't tend. I mean, saxophones tend to be really good at playing arpeggios. Hmm. They can go. String players, not so much. Right, we, cellists have four feet of fingerboard to contend we with, can, right? We can do it, but it, it's not what we do best. We yeah, play, right. We play pretty tunes, you know, and we, and, um, we play very legato quite beautifully. And so, I, you know, I wouldn't deny that. Um, and there are just finger patterns that you can learn, you know, that are very unique to your instrument. And playing, you know, jazz fiddle, is different from playing jazz cello because we have one less finger. That's right. You know, they can play scales like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. We go one, three, three four, four, oh. Open, <laughs> one, three, four, open, what, you know. So our whole thing, and, and I just went across recently some people who have, who have, who were teaching improv on the instrument doing, well, Mike Block is one, he's a name that I'll keep coming back to. What he has, he says it has, has nothing to do with his name, but he calls it block fingering. Hmm. So if you are playing, say, a D major, what you do, if you're playing a D major scale, starting on the C string, D, E, F sharp, and then you skip the open string and you play the notes in that scale on the next string, and then you play the notes in that scale on the next string, and you go up and you come back down and improvise on those. Then you move your hand up one step and you're still, you do the same thing. So like you go E, F sharp, G, B, C sharp, D, F sharp, G, A, C sharp, D, E. And you're still playing it basically a D major scale, only you, you're able to move all over the place and not have to 
run into the problems of the open strip. It seems, I wonder if he's got like a, a method book for that because one of the things, like all those horn players, he's a genius. all those horn players have like, these are the, like this, the patterns, right? So they can practice going up and down these weird things, pentatonic and, you know, all yeah. these different modes and things like that. But that's super clever. Absolutely. And I also think that adding on to your playing double stops, another thing that you can always do is play with the open string next door, but as opposed to a drone, it can be like every other note. And so what you end up with is the impression of speed, but it's just your bow that's moving quickly, but your left hand is moving at a manageable speed. Of course, it's not right at every possible moment, but if you've got some kind of chord where your A, D, or G is relevant, that might be another place to kind of you can dwell on that because it's a thing we do that like other instruments, they'd really have to work to make those fifths sound good. And quite frankly, if you want to learn how to play two lines at once or the, the or hint at two lines at once, it's Bach. Yeah. It's the Bach Suites. All day, every day. I mean, he, he wrote the book. He literally wrote the book. And, you know, if you look at something like the fugue at the beginning of the fifth suite, I mean, how the hell do you write a fugue for one instrument? And yet he does because it's all there. Yeah. So, so it's, that's always a really, really good um, way to go about it. I mean, just look at what he did. But um, I'm going to say one more thing about drones. Yeah, let's do it. Um which is really a cool thing, which I've only recently discovered, that, that a lot of the people in the Celtic world practice like this. Um, there is something, you can, you can get it on uh, iTunes or whatever they call it now, and it's also available on YouTube. It's called Cello Drones. Okay. And you can get, you can get, get it on, if you go on YouTube, you can get it. You can also purchase it on iTunes. Um, it is basically on every scale degree, you get six minutes of drone. Oh. And with, of a root and a, and a slightly softer fifth. And so you can just set it to like F or whatever and play all this music with this F drone going on for six minutes. And as soon as it gets to the end, it goes back to the beginning. And so you can do that for an hour. Oh, and God. It's the most magnificent time waster i've ever <laughs> what a gift because you can you can go down this rabbit hole and like never come out it is so much fun all right well so i'm doing this after right after we it's, record <laughs> it's called cello drones Just okay cello drones and it's fabulous i'm so excited so, oh, it's great. You'll love, you're going to love it because I know you and, and you'll just eat this up. I know. I can't help myself. And you'll come out weeks later. You know? I know. I, I go in with my cello, a drone, a glass of Cabernet. Done. Yeah. Ten hours yeah. later, I'll see you. It's great. It's great fun. So, um, so, especially, this is really important because a lot of people don't talk about the beginnings of their learning, right? Everyone's like, oh, I'm an expert at improvising and here's what you should do. So it's kind of fun that both you and I came from something totally different and then we got yeah. into improvising once we had some right. level of facility on the instrument. So what are some of the pitfalls to avoid? I'm going to start with just one. And the first one, though, is just hating on whatever you're playing. Just, just like calm down. It's not important. It's a journey of like discovery 
always, but like at the beginning, really just just look at it as a as an expedition. Ah, oh, this works. This doesn't cool, right? Because that's the jazz. That's the cool thing about the jazz rock mentality. Like classical can make you crazy because perfection is possible according to YouTube. <laughs> Maybe not according to many of the performances I've actually witnessed, but certainly you see some pretty astonishing playing. But the whole thing about jazz and rock, the reason we love it is that it's organic and cool and there's room for you. So what are some of the, the pitfalls you would say to avoid? Some of the pitfalls? Yeah, just, yeah. Uh, well, one of them is trying to be, I mean, if you have a certain technique on the instrument, it's really tempting to be too fancy. Mm, Overcomplicating. Like too many notes. Play, playing playing more notes, playing fewer notes and more right notes is is a real challenge. I mean, to I mean, you can, I can take the simplest tune and play. You know, and there are there are there are a bunch of um, websites you can go to iRealPro where you can where you can get backing tracks to like thousands of tunes. Or Jamie where Abersold. You, I mean, I still right, play from those. All of those things. iReal Pro is also very good, and you can change the tempo, you can change the key. Oh, that's you nice. Do, you can do all of this. You can edit it. You just do the A section. Um, but to, to act, you know, for me to actually play a tune, you know, something simple, something really simple, and hit every one of the changes, hit every one of the chords correctly, correctly, and and always get there at the right time on the right note is really hard, but it's very satisfying when it works. I mean, when you hear the real great ones do it, it's amazing. But, but just, I think fewer notes is better. Simple is better. And don't try to be too fancy is, is one of my, one of my suggestions about that. Um, Um, I remember for the first three weeks of combo class, Gary Pratt would not let any of us improvise on more than one note. So his whole thing, his treatise was that the heart of jazz and the heart of most music is rhythm. Yeah. And so he'd be like, you got to make the rhythm interesting before you try to fool us with notes. And I was just, yeah. And so, and we did like just C jam blues, right? Like the easiest, very simple. Oh, I just played that earlier this year. Right, exactly. Right, exactly. It's just like it's a total blank canvas. You can do as much or as little as you want. And it's also something one... like dum, da dum dum. Yes. Da dum dum. And the chords changes underneath it and you're basically playing the same thing. Yes, it's it's very yeah, molto semplice, yet the thing about music, especially when you're improvising, is about the communication between the musicians. And so, like, you can play a single note and burn the house down, and you can play 64 notes, and people are checking their phones. It's like, it's what the, it's the communication between the musicians and the time feel. So I think even though, don't get me wrong, I will listen to Charlie Parker, and he blows my doors off. He just, like, his barrage of notes, the whole thing is that they're all thoughtful. They're all the right note. He's like, he's such a savant level insane. But, but to start, you can have something in common with Charlie Parker, which is time feel. And you can just play one right note, and then you're on the same path that he has. 
Um, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the other... Well, I should, I should probably segue into, into my world, my Celtic world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I find, I mean, that's really kind of where I live these days. Although I do, my, my partner and I, we do, we are doing more and more improv because she's training to be a jazz fiddle player. And what's her name, by the way? Joyce, Joyce Pan. Yeah, she's a phenomenal and, and violinist that we will hear later on in this episode. Did you, did you listen to that cut? Oh, it's burning. <laughs> it's no, so no, no. good. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, we have a good time on that. Anyway, so this all started for me about maybe six years ago. I was coaching at a chamber music workshop. I love chamber music coaching. And there was, and there was this other cellist there. And someone put us together and said, you know, you guys both seem to like improvising and things like that. And so you told me about a camp up in Northern California called the Valley of the Moon Scottish Fiddle School. Oh, okay. So I wrote that down, put it in my notes on my phone. I figured, okay. So I went home and I looked it up. And I heard there was this guy who runs it. His name is Alistair Fraser. He's a Scotsman. And he plays duos with this young American cellist named Natalie Haas. And it, my jaw just dropped open. And I said, who are these people? And what are they playing? I want this that. This yeah. is the most beautiful music. It's just gorgeous. And and that's when I started. This, this, so I went to the camp, never having played Scottish music. And, of course, everybody's up there is asking me, so why are you here? Uh, I said, because I want to learn about this. So I started learning about this. And then I joined the Scottish Fiddlers of Los Angeles. And I met a whole bunch of people. And it's all, quite, quite, you know, it's like a network. You find out it's a pretty small world, the world of Celtic fiddling in the United States. Yeah. And so you get to know who's who really fast. And everybody's playing on, on everybody's recording and everybody's CD. And uh, as somebody once said, there are really only 50 people who do this, but you can't put 50 people in the studio at once. So everybody plays on everybody else's recordings. Makes sense. But anyway, so... What I discovered was that about maybe 25 years ago, a bunch of people, a bunch of cellists, kind of independently, and then they got to know each other, started creating this way of playing Celtic music, accompanying, which is very groove-oriented and very jazzy and very kind of rock and rolly. Yeah. And it, Natalie Haas, H-A-A-S. I know her, Yes. She's fabulous. She's amazing. I look at what she does and I can't possibly do it. I don't know how she do, does what she does. She, a guy, a complete crazy man named Rashad Eggleston. Of course, Rashad. Rashad Eggleston was part of that whole thing right there. Uh, and Mike Block also. And they started this whole world, this whole way of playing cello in Celtic music that I fell into. And I thought, where has this been my whole life? You know, because I came to it very late. As I said, when I started into retirement, you know, and really decided that I, classical music, the level of perfection in classical music is so high these days that I just can't, I can't bear to maintain my chops like that. <laughs> this, this stuff is pretty easy for fiddle players. It's all in first position. For cellists, it's a lot harder because we have to shift around because of the aforementioned lack of finger. Um, but it's wonderful stuff. It's beautiful stuff. And it, as my wife said to me, she, she said, you know, this appeals to every part of your person, your musical personality. 
you get to be a rock and roll bass player and you get to play beautiful music and you're accompanying because I'm basically an accompanist at heart. That's why I love conducting opera. That's why I love conducting concertos. I know Gary hated conducting concertos. Gary Pratt, you mentioned, yes. he hated it because he said, you never know what the soloist is going to do. And I said, that's what's so cool about it. You, you know, know, Gary Gary had to be like the mastermind at the, yeah, at he the helm. And the lack of control that he had. But so anyway, so I'm a natural accompanist. So I just, I'm real happy when I let the fiddle player go up there and be, I'm sitting great. I'm having a grand old time down there. And I, you know, and it's this, the whole thing, but that's also the same way we feel when we play cello in a quartet. It's the way I right? feel. I mean, that's the, so. That's what we do. Well, Spend yeah. Life making the other guy sound better. Well, but that's the whole thing. And if like, if you just surrender to the fact that it's an honor to create the context and that you have so much control over the flavor of the music, Oh, absolutely. It's, it is just as important, and also, just to be petty, who doesn't like to watch the violin sweat? I love it. I am happy for them to have all of that. Don't get me wrong. I'll, pay, I'll play Berlioz Prokofiev 5 any day of the week. I'm happy for it. But it's an honor to be an accompanying instrument, and it is, because of the size of the instrument, something we do naturally really well, as opposed to like really stress ourselves out. When I was doing jazz, I was in thumb position all the time, and it was like, I was in yeah. a cast. <laughs> well, it's hard. You know, I, I mean, I can look, I mean, listening to Natalie Haas play with, with Alistair Frazier, and they've been playing, they just celebrated 20 years together oh. playing, and they've made probably eight or 10 CDs. Nice. They're all phenomenal and fabulous. But if you listen to the, their performances, I mean, Alistair is a phenomenal Celtic fiddler. He's absolutely great and he's classically trained and, and he's just amazing. But I, am, I listen to their performances and their, their tunes and I would say that 80% of the flavor of the tune comes from Natalie. Yeah. Because what's so cool for cellists in this world is it, it, the only thing that's ever written down is the tune, the melody. And even that is very approximate. Every, every version you see written down of sheet music for a Celtic tune is different. So that's a whole other ball of wax. But the, uh, the cello parts, we get to make them up. We get to actually use... We make up the we we can actually make up the harmonies. We make up the rhythms. We and and all of that contributes to the flavor of it. And it's all about the cello. And so even though we're in an accompanying role, we get to. And I think as, as Rashad who said, he wanted to he he wants to create an entire band on the cello. So what what we can do is we can play the bass of the, the bass notes. We can play the rhythm of the drums. We can go boom, chick, boom, chick, boom, chick. And you're basically doing the backbeat on the snare drum. We can also play rhythm guitar parts. We can go boom, did it, boom, did it, boom, chick, chick, boom, chick, chick. We can also play the beautiful melody. So there are like at least four different roles that we play in Celtic music. And it is wonderful. It's a huge responsibility. 
but it is something that is so creative because we get to make it up. We really get to, it's like being a composer. Yeah. And, and every every tune gets better and more fully developed and you try something new and uh, that's one of the reasons I really love it and it's not that hard technically you can do it very, with that with pretty rudimentary cello technique you can be because there's maybe four chords in each tune right and probably three and lots of them are D <laughs> we like right. that and they, and they write it all and it's all in you in, in I mean it's all in keys that are great for string instruments you know it's either d or a or g or e minor yeah it's in e minor and a lot of it's just beautiful in these mo these minor modes a lot of it is in dorian a lot of it is you know in aeolian in natural minor scales actually um, so with that in mind let's remind everybody because we're trying to make this episode like it is possible you should absolutely go and try this if this is something you have a yearning to do how long I'm sure you are an expert cellist and a lifelong musician, but how long, so, because we're going to hear at the very end of the episode, we're going to hear this track that you shared with us. How long have you been playing this style of music? Would you remind us? Six years. Six years, guys. So there are plenty of very serious adult amateurs who have the time and like, you, sh you shouldn't be afraid if you're starting your journey today, right? Right. The, 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 you know, there's certain things that you can do, one of which is the, the glory of YouTube. You should go listen to these people and, and try to imitate. Play along with them however you can. Try to imitate them. I mean, I can't do what Natalie Haas does. I can't do what Mike Block does because they do the, some of these chopping things that I can't do because I have other hand problems to talk about and I hold the bow in a weird way. And I can't do the chops that they do, but I come up with my version of their version of the tune. You know, they start with the tune, they come up with their version of how to do the tune, and I come up with my version of their version. Right. And there's nothing, you know, and the thing is, this is such a wide open field. I mean, anything goes in the Celtic world. I mean, the classical world is very tightly prescribed. I mean, if you're a violist, these are the pieces you play. And this is what you do, and this is how you do it, and you better practice some more because it still doesn't sound good enough. Whereas in this world, I mean, you, I've been to fiddle camps, and they're probably a quarter to a third of the people are rank beginners who have never played the instrument before. And there's a room, there's room for them in the Celtic world. I think it's beautiful. It's fabulous. It's it's and and. And everybody writes their own tunes. So it's this very expansive view of what it means to be a musician. That's, that, you know, if you're, I'm a cellist in the classical world, I'm a cellist. If I'm a composer, I'm a composer. If I'm an arranger, I'm an arranger, you know. But in this world, everybody plays multiple instruments. People play guitar, people play mandolin, they play cello, they play pizzicato, they play bass. And they write their own tunes and... It's kind of this broad view of what it means to be a musician, and it's pretty cool because it really, with open arms, welcomes anybody. Damn right. It's perfect. I'm going to link to these people, by the way. In the show notes, there's going to be links yeah. to all of these people's playing um, and to the camp. 
And and so the, the, there, and the, the thing about camp, there there's several camps. The, the, Alistair Fraser runs several of them. Mike Block one runs one down in Florida. There's one in I think New York. I know that one of my former students who actually ended up to being a professional cellist uh, attended one with Rashad Eggleston. I want to say it was in New York somewhere. Well, well, there's the Ashokan Center, the that Ashokan, run by Jay Unger, who was the fiddle player. And what in his most famous tune is something called the Ashokan Farewell, Farewell, which was used in the Ken Burns Civil War. Civil War. Da, da, dum, da, dee, da, dee. Yes. And because he runs this thing, he and his wife run this thing called the Ashokan Center somewhere in the Catskills. I don't yeah. know where it is. It might and, be. And uh, so there are fiddle camps all over. There's one called the Rocky Mountain Fiddle Camp in Colorado. There's a there's another one in West Denmark, Wisconsin that focuses mostly on Scandinavian music. So Hardinger fiddles in there sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I mean, that's a whole other world of fiddling. Is the like, the Nordic tr- tradition, Sweden and and Norway. Otherworldly. There's, there's a band called Vessen, V A with an umlaut over it. Vessen, who have been together for like 30 years, and they are amazing. They're three guys. One plays viola, one plays, or, or five-string fiddle. Most people play five-string fiddles. Right. So they get the low C. And the other one plays what's called the nickel harp, which is this really weird kind of Swedish folk instrument that's got keys that play. You don't put your fingers on the... You to look up nickel harfa. Harfa, nickel okay. Harp. And, and another one plays guitar, and they're amazing. They're just amazing. I and love this it. Whole, this whole world that I... And what I haven't mentioned, other than Alistair, is all the fiddle players who are amazing that you need to study with and listen for. One is Jeremy Kittle, K-I-T-T-E-L, who uh, is amazing, and Hanukkah Castle is another one, and there's this great... Uh, um, Irish fiddle player named Martin Hayes, and this is a—he's a perfect example. Martin is amazing; he's just incredible. You look at his as as you look at his playing, and it looks god awful. He does this with his left hand. He's making a claw, listeners. You're not supposed to do this. He holds up the fiddle with this part of his hand. He holds the bow somewhere up on the stick and just kind of does this, (laughs) and it's fabulous. You just don't care that it's not classical technique because of what he plays. And he can play for an, I've heard him play for an hour straight, going from tune to tune to tune, and it's all different and it's all wonderful. And he never makes mistakes. And it's got the greatest sense of rhythm ever. It's all kind of rock and roll too. So it is, it's so much fun to do. Yeah, this if if you are not encouraged to give it a shot after this episode, I don't know. I don't know what else you need to hear. Um, So as we wrap this up, um, we're going to hear at the end of this episode a a piece. We might even play the whole piece. Um, We might just go for it because I upgraded to the expensive storage plan on SoundCloud. So let's just okay. make this a very fat episode. Would you tell us a little bit about the um, the piece that our listeners are going to hear when we two actually just shut up for once? Okay, well, if we're going to play the whole thing... Which yeah, is, think, uh, we'll give it a go. The way, the, way we, the way it happens in this world is people write put sets together of a couple of di- two or three different tunes. So this is a, a, these are three different tunes, one of which... The first one of which is something called Cabin Fever, which I wrote 
it is a um, it's a jig, a six eight jig, and one of the first things I did, just a little side note, one of the first things I did when I retired, when my and my wife retired at the same time, and we realized that if we were going to spend twenty four seven with each other in the house, we'd probably kill each other. So the first thing I did was order and and build a cabin, a studio in the backyard. Nice. So so I go out there and practice, and I've got it's electrified, and I've got a keyboard, and I've got a cup warmer, and I've got lights and everything. And it's wonderful. So this was my first tune that I wrote out there in the cabin. So I call it Cabin Fever. Nice. Uh, um, that's followed by a tune called Clueless by a great Scottish bagpiper named Gordon Duncan, who writes the best tunes in the fiddle, fiddle world. It's discovered his hit, and they're just fabulous. Gordon Duncan, listen to his tunes. All right. And then, and then the last one is this kind of kick-ass full bore tune, a real, it's French-Canadian, called uh, Le Rapide de Joie Blanc, which is, means the White Horse Rapids. Um, and I cannot remember the name of the composer, and I feel terrible about that. And so we string these three tunes together, um, and that's, that's what this is. This is the last cut on the album that Joyce and I made. In the middle of the pandemic, we recorded our first album. Well, I think um, a lot of us pandemic people will appreciate the idea of cabin fever. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And if you're interested in this, and you can probably put this up there, our, oh, hi there. Hi, Bella. <laughs> She's the star of the show always. <laughs> and um, there, our CD, our recording is up on Bandcamp. Great. So if you go to Joyce and David... All one word with no capitals. Joyce and David. Dot Bandcamp. Dot com. No. We will link to it no matter what. So we'll figure okay. it out. So it will you be can linked. Buy, you can either buy a CD and we'll send you a CD, or you can buy the digital download. Fantastic. And so that's what I've been doing in my retirement. That sounds good. And it's it's pretty cool. I think it sounds like the best way to, it doesn't sound like a retirement, it more like it sounds like a, a kind of tributary of the original river. Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, just I have one more thing to say about that, is that, that things have changed in the, in, the, in the string world. They really have. In the last 20 years. And whereas I, when I first started doing this, I would have thought of myself as a classical musician who's kind of wandering into the strange land now, I feel like I'm a cellist. I play classical music, which I, I get up every day and I play half an hour of box suites. I play classical music, I play in quartets. I also play Celtic music. I also play jazz music. I play rock and roll. I'm a cellist. I'm not a classical cellist. I'm a cellist who plays lots of different genres. That's right. And which, which I... You know, and there's, there are some people out there who are operating at the top of the business in all genres. I mean, I don't know if you know Tessa Lark. Look up Tessa Lark. She plays like Barbara Violin Concerto with the New York Philharmonic, but she grew up as a bluegrass player. Oh, boy. And she plays bluegrass and Celtic and Beethoven Violin Concerto like no one's business. So she's somebody who's a fiddle player who just plays all these genres really, really well, you know, and I'm sure she doesn't consider herself one thing or another. Tessa Lark is amazing. We'll link to her too. What? 
We'll link to her too. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, and and that's what's so wonderful about the alternative stream world these days is that anything goes, and you can do all of this stuff, and nobody thinks any of the worse for you because she comes and plays a concerto with the New York Philharmonic, and she sounds fabulous, and then she goes and jams all night at a bluegrass club, and nobody says, "Well, don't, they don't take her less seriously because she plays bluegrass," you know? Yeah. Because she can do it all. She can do it all, and also it's funny because now that it is so much more rare to actually make a life completely as a concertizing musician, yeah. like I know people who are some of them, I'm not even going to name names because I don't want to violate their privacy, but I know people who are not able to make the ends meet, and these are people who I happen to know have soloed with New York Phil, Vienna, Concert Cabal, San Francisco, right, right. and and I know people who are like selling their instruments because they need to make the ends meet. So now that it's sort of like, what what it boils down to is we do this because we just love the hell out of it. Well, you know, and the thing about the Celtic world is that there is almost no money to be made. No, none. So everybody is in it for like the right reasons. That's right. Because they love it. Yeah. Because there really is there's like no career. There's no money to be made. You you know, you sell a few CDs after the concert and that's that, you know? Some people get a you know, have a road, you know, career, but almost nobody does it. So there's no money to be made. So everybody's in it for really good reasons. That's right. They like playing and they like the people. That's so, absolutely it. So that's that's where I am right now in my career. I mean, I've conducted operas. I, you know, Mozart is my favorite composer ever. I love Mozart. I love Bach. I love Ravel. I've conducted all of these symphonies. And uh, right now, what I'm mostly doing is playing Celtic music and loving it. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. You are welcome. It's been fun. All right. Okay, now we get to hear David and Joyce playing a tune called Cabin Fever, which is actually kind of three different tunes kind of smushed into one. Um, But I hope you will enjoy it. And thank you again for being so patient uh, with all of our audio issues. I really appreciate it. Until next time.
Thank you.